I'm John. And I'm Roddy. Welcome to the Change for Balance podcast, where we talk with pioneers, leaders, creators, and athletes. We'll dive into issues of today and do our best to come up with solutions. Together, we can create a better world. After all, we are all in this leaky canoe together. Our guest today is Siddharth Kara. Siddharth is a New York Times bestselling author and the director of the Program on Human Trafficking and Modern Slavery at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, where he is also a lecturer. His new book, Cobalt Red, takes a deep dive into the horrors of mining the mineral cobalt, which we all use every day. Let's get into the show. First off, thank you so much for, for being here and for taking the time to speak with us. Absolutely. You put together that terrific video, so I, I'm, uh, it's always lovely when I stumble upon things like that and I realize people are out there um, hearing the voices of the Congolese people and being creative and trying to spread awareness, and that was terrific. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we were moved, I mean, very moved by the book, very moved by uh, your podcast on Rogan. Your work is so brave and courageous, and as filmmakers, that what drives us is to tell stories that can make the world a better place. And oftentimes they're, they're challenging to do. And so we can just tell with the thought, the care that went into the book, even when you talk about it in interviews, um, you're such a powerful storyteller and such a brilliant communicator. So just thank you for using that power for, for the forces of good. Well, uh, you're very kind, and um, it's it all is inspired by the the people in the Congo who you you um, having been there know what their lives are like, what they've been through, and and how brave and courageous they are, uh, persevering uh, through through so many um, challenges, calamities, tragedies, strife, uh, poverty, disease. So um, that at the very least, um, you know, people like us can do is to use our talents. Uh, to help spread their message. I think, you know, we've been thinking about this podcast for a little while, and I think what would be really helpful, because I, we know a lot of people heard the podcast on Rogan, but even since we released our video and the conversations that we've had, there's still a lot of people that just don't know um, at all. So we'd love to, like, build the case, go step by step, even just at the elementary level. Like, if you could walk us through what is cobalt and why has it become so essential in our daily lives? Sure. So cobalt is um, uh, a crucial battery component metal, rechargeable battery component metal. So it's used in the manufacture of almost every single lithium-ion rechargeable battery made in the world today. Uh, so that means batteries in your smartphone, tablet, laptop, e-bike, e-scooter, uh, and crucially and increasingly electric vehicles Almost all of them have cobalt in the battery. And the reason um, there's cobalt in the battery is that it, it helps the battery hold maximum charge while remaining thermally stable. So what does that mean? Um, it means we don't want to plug in our things all the time. So the more charge the battery can hold, um, uh, the longer we can use our phones and the, uh, and the greater the range an EV will have. Um, but the more energy you pack into that battery, the greater the risk it will just um, combust. And so cobalt uh, helps the batteries remain stable. You don't want your phone and, and especially don't want your car just catching on fire. Now, um, that's why cobalt is so essential. The link to the Congo is that by just virtue of pure geographic fluke, 
the southeastern corner of the Democratic Republic of the Congo is sitting on more reserves of cobalt than the rest of the planet combined. So uh, last year, almost three-fourths of the world's supply of cobalt was mined in the DRC. Uh, and as I discussed in Cobalt Red, it's mined in utterly horrific conditions that are violent and destructive uh, uh, against the people living there and their environment. When we were there in the Congo, we were trying to wrap our heads around what we were seeing because, you know, you arrive in Kinshasa, you have, like, and for our experience, we've been to South Africa a few times, um, but we, nothing really prepared us for what we were going to see in the Congo at that time. Our valet picks us up, I mean valet, uh, from the airport, stops in at something like a coat check, and he's handed his gun that he just slides under his driver's seat. And then we drive through the, the wildest town we've ever seen. You see the Sampours fully dressed in their suits walking through the busy streets of Kinshasa. And they said, look, if you really want to understand the Congo, you need to, you need to read King Leopold's Ghost. And so we read it and it sort of, you know, walks through the abuse at, at the hands of the Belgians. But what I think would be great to talk about next is laying the, the foundation, the context of the Congo, the atrocities that they've faced whether it's at the hands of ivory, rubber, gold, diamonds, uranium, even walking us through, telling us the story about the, the, the coup of their first democratically elected leader. All these things that sort of create the framework for what's happening today. And then, you know, not to, to ramp it up too much, but how this cobalt is, is, is the newest thing, but even slightly, what makes it different with, with all of us involved? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, sit back and, and, warm your cup of tea because this will take a minute. Um, uh, but it's important, as you rightfully note, the Congo has an epic, tragic history, um, but you can't appreciate um, uh, fully what's happening in the mining provinces vis-a-vis uh, -vis cobalt mining today without really understanding that history. And so let's just walk through it um, in somewhat of a, a, a abbreviated format, because as I said, it's just an enormous but crucial history um, you know, Europeans first came upon um, the Congo uh, all the way back in 1482. It was a Portuguese uh, explorer named Diego Cal. He reached the mouth of the Congo River in 1482 uh, uh, in an area called Luongo Bay. And within a couple of years, the uh, within a few years, the Portuguese had set up a slave trading outpost in Luongo Bay and um, near the mouth of the Congo River. And what a lot of people don't know is across the next 350, 60 years of the Atlantic slave trade, about one-fourth of the 12.5 to 13 million Africans who were stolen from Africa and carted across the Atlantic and sold into slavery, about one-fourth of them departed from Luongo Bay. So just with the slave trade from the early 1500s to the mid-1800s, um, you've got this ransacking and pillaging of the people there, um, which has uh, utterly ruinous consequences uh, across generations. Um, now you get into the middle uh, 1800s, and that, that heart of Africa, where the Congo is, was the last sort of unknown frontier. Europeans had no idea what was in there. Uh, throughout the slave trade, they, they largely stayed along the coasts because of disease. They had no natural defenses against malaria, uh, so trekking inland uh, was a death sentence. Um, uh, there were some explorers who figured out how to survive malaria using quinine, 
uh, the steamboat was invented. And so now you could travel upriver. And there was the stream in Europe that if we can find a river that goes from the interior to the coast, uh, that's sort of a natural um, uh, a transportation route to bring the riches of the African interior out to market. And that's precisely what happened. Um, uh, a chap named uh, Henry Morton Stanley traced the Congo River um, across almost a thousand days. That's how long it took. But he did it and got to the um, Atlantic coast in 1877. And so now there was this moment where there was a waterway that reached from the interior, which was teeming with riches, to the coast. And Europeans had their sights set on that last uh, un uncontrolled frontier. Uh, so they gathered uh, in 1884 in Berlin, um, uh, the European colonial powers, to decide, now, how are we going to slice up Africa? Let's do it in a civilized way so we don't run into conflict with each other. And there was some horse trading and so on and so forth. And there was the Belgian king. Belgium was the only European country, major European country that didn't have a colony. And he had his eyes set on the Congo. Um, and he got it. He got it actually as personal property. Uh, and that personal property, the entire heart of the Congo, was about 77 times the size of Belgium. And it just so happened, in the same year that King Leopold got his hands on the Congo, 1885, a chap in Germany named Karl Benz invented an internal combustion vehicle with steel-clad wheels. And it, it only goes so fast before those wooden lace steel-clad wheels started to fall apart. And in 1888, a fellow fellow named Dunlop, Scotsman, invented a rubber tire. Uh, and that it, it launched the first automobile revolution. And it just so happened that Leopold's Congo happened to be sitting on one of the largest rubber tree rainforests on the planet. So he deployed a mercenary army to terrorize, enslave, torture uh, the native population to extract rubber sap. And that's when the horror really began. Um, villagers were given a quota uh, of rubber to gather. If the men didn't do it, uh, it didn't get their quota, then uh, uh, hands were chopped off, noses were chopped off, wives were killed. It, it, just the utter atrocity. Uh, Joseph Conrad was in the Congo at that time. That's what inspired Heart of Darkness. Um, there were some great human rights leaders who uh, first saw what was happening uh, and eventually formed the first human rights movement uh, of the 20th century called the Congo Reform Association, led by Roger Casement and Edie Morrell. They took down a king in as much as Leopold was forced to sell his personal property to the Belgian government in 1908. It was just about that same time that these enormous mineral deposits were uncovered by the Belgians in the southeastern corner of the Congo, an area that used to be called Katanga. And it was swarming swimming uh, in, in metal and mineral deposits. Uh, the most valuable at that time was copper. Coming out of the Industrial Revolution, copper was needed for everything. Um, so the Belgian state just kind of picked up where Leopold left off, but instead of rubber, they were after the copper um, and set up mining companies that exploited copper, used forced labor, again, on the native population to force them to mine copper, gold, uh, uh, zinc, uh, uh, and other metals. Uh, sort of flash forward to 1960, there's a wave of independence movements across the global south, anti-colonial fervor. Um, the Congo got its independence uh, uh, from Belgium in 1960. It was a very tumultuous time because 
um, about 80% of the country's economy was mining in Katanga, Katanga. And the Belgians did not want to part with that cash cow. So 11 days after independence, they sent in a military force and basically annexed the mining province, uh, amputating the, uh, the country's economy uh, before it ever had a chance to get going. Now, there's a lot of uh, sort of intrigue and geopolitical maneuvering at that time. The uh, democratically elected prime minister of Congo, Patrice Lumumba, uh, reached out to the UN asking for help to expel the Belgians and stabilize the country. Uh, he didn't quite get that, so he shifted his attention to the Soviet Union and asked them for help. And then everything went into a tailspin because the thought that uh, the Congo's mineral riches would flow towards the Soviet Union, remember now we're in 1960, 1961, mineral uh, riches would flow towards the Soviet Union instead of the West. Can't have that. So the U.S., the CIA, Belgium, uh, neocolonial powers at the U.N. hatched a plot to assassinate Lumumba. They did assassinate him, um, propped up a bloody dictator, Joseph Mobutu, in his place. And the history of the Congo since that time has been one coup after another, dictator after another, uh, leading up to the present day and the Cobalt Revolution, which now we see you can't make this stuff up. Fact is more uh, uh, bizarre than fiction. We're in the midst of a second automobile revolution. Uh, this time it's not rubber, it's cobalt for the rechargeable batteries. And guess who happens to be sitting on more cobalt than everybody else? Once again, it's the Congo. And once again, it's the same chapter and verse of foreign powers coming in to ransack and pillage the people and resources of the Congo. Yeah, it's like uh, generational exploitation as, as far back as we could yeah, and our interests just have not aligned with the African people. I mean that, and now it's that evidence is in our pockets and what we're driving, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, the two of you, me, everyone watching us right now, we can't function for twenty four hours without cobalt. I mean, try going without your gadgets for twenty four hours; it's just not possible. And if you have an electric car, um, uh, you can't get anywhere without cobalt. And and so we're all participants in this. Um, this enormous violence that's being inflicted on the people of Africa, in the heart of Africa, uh, to enable our rechargeable lives and our transition to renewable sources of energy. Uh, but it's built on a, on a hypocrisy because how can we pursue climate sustainability goals, all of which are important, uh, but how can we pursue these climate sustainability goals by destroying the people and the environment in the heart of Africa? Um, it doesn't make sense. It, it, it's, uh, it's an enormous hypocrisy. Uh, we need to take a beat, stop, and ensure that we sort out the bottom of the supply chain so that um, we're not preserving our part of the planet for our children by forfeiting um, the, the heart of Africa and their children. That's a good segue into telling us a little bit about how cobalt is mined. Can you tell us a little bit about you know, you know, we talked about the African exploitation of the people in the Congo, but what does that exactly mean? Can you tell us where the cobalt comes from? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So um, the mining happens in one of two ways, either with heavy machinery or with pickaxes and shovels by hand. Um, now, the stakeholders at the top of the chain, the tech companies and the EV companies, will tell you the story that all their cobalt comes from industrial mining excavators and heavy machinery. They buy cobalt from ABC Mining Company 
ABC Mining Company in the Congo, which is almost surely going to be a Chinese state-run mining company, that that mining company only uses heavy machinery, that there's no women, there's no children, there's no fathers and sons digging by hand. Um, but the truth of the matter is that this hand-based digging, which is called artisanal mining, which is a ridiculous term that makes you think of people baking bread, uh, uh, but in fact, it's just brute hard labor um, uh, uh, using human force, uh, rebar, shovels, pickaxes to uh, claw cobalt ore out of the ground, stick it in sacks and feed it up the chain. There are hundreds of thousands of people, some of the poorest people on the planet, um, uh, doing exactly that every day. Uh, suffering hazardous uh, exposure because cobalt is toxic to touch and breathe, uh, a rash of uh, injuries, a public health catastrophe, uh, cancers, birth defects, all of these things are running wild in the Congo and the mining provinces because of this. So people are digging this stuff out by hand. And the reality is, when you get on the ground, these fictions, uh, 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 these stories that are told outside of the Congo about what's happening there are revealed to be utter fictions, not unlike the Leopold days, um, when he said everything is good, the, the the Africans are working in pleasing conditions, and I'm saving them with with uh, commerce and opportunity. And of course, people got down there, truth seekers, and realized, wait a minute, none of that's true. The same thing is happening now. So ABC Mining Company that we talked about, uh, that uh, tech and EV companies will say, well, I'm buying from there, and it's only industrial equipment. When you actually go there, as I have, and this is what I talk about in Cobalt Red, that mining company will be teaming with five or 10,000 people digging by hand. In fact, there might be no excavators at all, or they're working alongside it. And when you step back, you realize this makes complete sense because it's a, it's a penny wage way of boosting production. You pay people a dollar or two a day to dig out 40, 50, 60, 70 kilograms of cobalt ore per day times hundreds of thousands of people, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of tons of cobalt being dug out of the ground for, for pennies. And that all flows into the formal supply chain. And that's the truth that the stakeholders at the top of the chain don't want anyone to know, don't want anyone to see. Uh, but that's the truth that emerges from the voices of the Congolese people as they tell their truth in the pages of Cobalt Red and anyone else who will listen. You say it in your book so beautifully, labor is valued by the penny and life is not valued at all. And I wonder if- Not at all. Uh, it, it's, you know, if, 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 if a 10-year-old child suffers a shattered spine and a pit wall collapse, well, there's another 50 10-year-old children who have no food to eat and will come in with their parents and work for a dollar or two a day because you have to understand there's no alternative you might say, well, well, can't they maybe grow some potatoes or, or, or get a job or do some work? Mining has just taken over that entire part of the Congo. These mining concessions keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And when I say mining concession, that means the territory that a mining company is allowed to excavate. And when I say bigger, this is what I mean. The largest mining concession for copper and cobalt in the Democratic Republic of the Congo is the size of London. So you have to imagine a city-sized, a mega-city-sized swath of territory where there used to be hundreds of thousands of people living in villages, all of them displaced, kicked off, that land being destroyed. And now these people are at the periphery of this concession, 
And the only way they can survive is to go back onto the land they used to live in and scrounge around all day trying to get a sack or two of cobalt filled so they can earn a dollar or two, maybe three, and have enough food to eat. So, uh, and if they get injured, if they get sick, if they die, well, there's still hundreds of thousands of people who are displaced who will come in and, and keep digging. So life is not valued at all. Uh, in some ways, African life is worth less now than at the height of the slave trade. Because in the height of the slave trade, it was very time-consuming and expensive for Europeans to bring their ships down the African coast, load it with Africans, cart them across the Atlantic, sell them into slavery, for the equivalent of ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars today each, um, and then return. And so, if that person died, it would take a long time and cost a lot of money to replace them. Today, um, you can replace an African if you're a corrupt, uh, callous, amoral uh, foreign power pillaging the place. You can you can find another poor, starving African in a matter of minutes who will work for a dollar or two because that's the difference between eating or not. We do a lot of work with the Charlize Theron Africa Outreach Project in South Africa, and we visited Rwanda with her. Uh, but one of the talking points that she uses all the time is like, we just treat some lives differently, or some lives just mean more to us. Value some lives more than others. That's what it is. It's, That's very evident here. You know, one thing that comes to mind is the, the, the electric vehicle industry. You've mentioned that the EV batteries are the ones that are using the majority of the cobalt that's being mined, right? Compared to our phones or our laptops, that's a small portion of the cobalt. So when we have like democratically elected officials like Gavin Newsom or other people who are working for the people saying we need to have a, you know, 100% EV adoption rate across the United States, um, why, how is it that they're not thinking about these human rights injustices when they are pushing these types of ideas or saying it's for the benefit of the environment, but at what cost, right? Like it, it, there is a cost. No one's talked about it. No one's thought about it. That that that's the big failing of this entire transition um, uh, to EVs. I, it, it's 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 not even um, an oversight. I mean, it's a it's an utter, unacceptable, unconscionable failure to account for the conditions at the bottom of the chain. So, I mean, if you have uh, entire countries. Uh, adopting mandates that they'll they'll have no more gas-powered car sales by 2030 or 2035 as we push for this transition to um, cap or bring down um, uh, global temperatures and sea levels and so on, all of which we need to do, fine. Uh, but that that you're implying hundreds of millions of EVs on the road in the, in the next decade. I mean, right now there's maybe 25, 26, 27 million EVs on the road globally. Um, but if these mandates are all fulfilled, you're talking two, three, four hundred million in the next 10 or 20 years. And the battery packs in EVs uh, can require up to 10 kilograms of cobalt, a thousand times what's in a smartphone. And you multiply that by hundreds of millions of EVs. And, and there's actually probably not even that much cobalt that's going to be left by the time we get to that point. And as he said, 75% of last year's supply came from the Congo, and it's only expected, that share is only expected to increase. So what you're doing is you've placed enormous demand-side pressure to scramble cobalt out of the ground as rapidly as possible and feed it up the chain. And that's why having this population of people who are grindingly poor 
who have no alternative and will will produce 40, 50, 60 kilograms of cobalt ore in a day for $2 because that means they can eat that day. Um, it's just unleashed enormous human rights consequences, negative human rights consequences, quite apart from the environmental damage. When these concessions are uh, excavated, you're talking millions of trees, clear cut. And I never met anyone in the Congo who told me they saw someone replanting those trees. Um, those mining companies dump toxic effluents in the water, in the air. I mean, you feel it walking around in the mining areas. You feel it burning your eyes. You feel the grit in your throat. Now imagine the people who live there breathing that every day. It's in the fish stock. It's in the food stock. So they eat it every day. They're growing vegetables. It's in the groundwater. It's in the dirt. We're poisoning those people so we can drive around in an EV. We're destroying their environment so we can preserve ours. And we're literally slowly killing off the people living in the southeastern part of the Congo to pursue these climate sustainability goals. And the fact that no one at the top, no policymakers, no tech companies, no EV companies stop to say, hold on, let's make sure as we pursue these important climate sustainability goals that we're not trampling on people along the way, that we're not destroying some part of the planet to save ours. And, and that's this crucially missing component to this entire movement. Um, and the fact that to this day, there's a lack of engagement on addressing those conditions in the Congo in a meaningful way is utterly unacceptable. It's completely unacceptable, and all of us need to take to task policymakers uh, for this failure. Do you know when cobalt was, you know, when they discovered that it helped stabilize the battery and extend range and things like EVs? And when did the rush start to happen to, you know, start mining in the Congo? Yeah, it goes back probably 13, 14 years or so, maybe around 2010. Um, when, you know, when you talk to people living in that part of the Congo, they'll tell you their lives kind of started changing 2010, 11, 12. I mean, um, there was cobalt in the batteries probably as far back as 2008, um, uh, but the but the but the the battery design really kind of took hold, and then with the with the EV explosion around 2012, uh, and there were some efforts um, uh, to create alternate designs, um, which didn't bear too much success at that time. You may remember there was this period where um, you know you couldn't take on gadgets on the planes because they were going to catch on fire, and that was an effort to not use cobalt. Um, uh, there, there are and will be more and more battery chemistries that are cobalt-free. That doesn't mean that the other metals in them are being mined in any sort of reasonable way, like lithium. Lithium is, is mined, and it's another horror show. It's been enormously destructive. Um, in Chile and other parts of the world where it's mined. Um, but the thing about cobalt is it's all in one place. Uh, and there's no avoiding it uh, for decades to come. Uh, it will be a story of the destruction of the Congo and its people for decades to come for cobalt. Uh, and that, unless something changes. And that's why it's important for people to hear the voices and the ground truth and realize they've been sold a fiction that when they buy an EV, they've made a good choice for the planet. Well, maybe for our part of the planet, but certainly not for the African part of the planet. Um, and, and that's quite apart from the colossal invasion of the, the people. And when we talk about the supply chain, I would love 
because on one hand we see the final product that is is marketed to us as the solution but on the very opposite end is what you're describing seeing in the congo firsthand and i would love it if you could just share some of the things that you've seen and that you shared in cobalt red and, and we can't recommend the book enough for everybody that's listening we want them to read it but with women working with children on their back child labor tunnel collapses can you just share some of the stories that you have seen sure of course i mean when 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 i've been down there and, and walking around some of these mining areas um you have to imagine and and an, a territory that could be 10, 20, 15 square miles in size um, that's just been completely chewed up, obliterated, and destroyed um, uh, by by excavation for cobalt. And there'll be oftentimes, um, the local population will gather um, uh, in and around a mining concession because they know their reserves there. Um, they may climb into the mining area to dig. They may dig around the mining area. And so you, oftentimes, especially families with younger children, will dig around a mining area. And you have to imagine this lunar landscape that's just been completely chewed out. There are no birds in the sky. There's no flowers. There's no trees. There's no little stream or pond. Um, it's just obliterated earth. And there'll be hundreds and hundreds of women with little with babies strapped to their backs all of them breathing toxic cobalt dust every time they hack at the ground. Uh, pits and trenches that people dig in to gather dirt uh, uh, and stone to fill into sacks. Uh, and once they fill in the sack, they have to sort of separate the cobalt door from just the useless stones the and dirt. So children will go into these putrid um, rinsing pools, just just completely suffused with heavy metals. And they'll get up to their waist, you know, barefoot, barebodied, and, and just sort of sieve dirt from stone and then handpick uh, the cobalt stones that are left in the sieve to fill in the sack. And so there's all this toxic exposure um, uh, that people are in, are suffering each and every day. Um, now, the, the most dangerous thing, all of it's hazardous. Everything being done there by the local population is hazardous. But the most dangerous is tunnel digging. And there are men and teenage boys who dig tunnels, and they—it's men and, and teenage boys because because it requires quite a bit of strength. And the reason they dig tunnels is, um, as you get a little deeper, the deposits of cobalt ore are a higher grade. Think of it like purity. So um, people get paid by kilogram based on the purity uh, of of the cobalt they're digging out. So if you want to earn a little more. You need a higher grade of cobalt, and that can be found sometimes 50, 60, 70, up to 100, 120 feet down. So using just shovels, they'll dig a tunnel down. The opening will be about a, a, a meter in diameter, and they'll keep digging straight down until they find a, a vein of cobalt door, and then we'll follow that along parallel. Now, there's the, the tunnels they excavate, there's not enough room to sit up, so they're crouched in darkness. They have little headlights that they use. They may spend up to 24 hours underground uh, just sort of using a pickaxe against the wall of the tunnel, um, filling up the sack, and then someone will pull it up with a rope at the surface. It's very hard to breathe down there, heavily toxic particulates. Um, and what happens is these tunnels, because they're being dug by, um, by people with shovels, 
they don't have supports, rock bolts, ventilation shafts, and inevitably and often uh, the tunnels collapse. And everyone who's down there is just buried alive. And I have heard and documented numerous testimonies from parents who lost a child in a tunnel collapse, wives who lost a husband, um, and happened to be, and I read about this in Cobalt Red, it even happened to be nearby when a tunnel collapse happened. And it's the most horrific um, event you can imagine because, uh, I mean, what's, what's a more horrible death than just being buried alive under a crush of rock and dirt? Uh, for a few dollars, you know, that's the payoff at best. It's a few dollars that day, but you think, so why do people do it? And it's, there's nothing else there and there's no other way to survive. So there's this pressure, um, uh, to try and dig and earn a little more. And it's this tragic gamble, um, uh, maybe some more income, but the clock is always ticking and, and eventually, um, there's a tragic outcome and 30, 40, 50 people at a time can be buried alive. And it, it's, and that's, that's what's in our phone. That's what's in your car. And that's what people need to know. That's the truth. It's not, the truth is not that your phone is clean. Your EV is clean of that kind of horror. Absolutely not. And anyone who says otherwise is either dealing in falsehood or recklessly ignorant of the truth at the bottom of their supply chain. And it seems like never in the history of humanity has everyone played a role in this type of in this type of slavery. One of the things I say is, uh, as, a, as, as someone who studied history, uh, slavery, history of slavery, and modern slavery, I, I feel pretty confident saying that never in the history of slavery or colonial pillage has there been ever an instance in which there was more degradation at the bottom of a chain that generated more profit at the top and and touch the lives of more people around the world. I mean, we're talking billions of people rely on cobalt every day. Uh, the companies generate tens of billions of dollars in profit. Uh, and the people at the bottom are suffering injury, insult, hazard, toxic contamination, and horrid death. Uh, and on their best day, maybe earning a few dollars. And that's just never happened in history. And that's the truth. That's the truth that people have to acknowledge. That's the truth that tech and EV companies need to acknowledge because it's their supply chains. They can't just look the other way and say, well, someone else is responsible for the conditions under which our cobalt is being dug out of the ground. Demand for this, this metal started at the top of the chain, and that's where the solutions have to stop. And it's, it, you can't put sufficient superlatives on um, how horrific this is happening, the worst uh, uh the most horrible. I mean, there's not a, there's not language um, uh, that adequately describes the hypocrisy, the horror, the violence, the suffering, the misery, and the injustice of what's happening vis-a-vis cobalt supply chain. And we're talking about Apple, Tesla, Ford, GM, Samsung. I mean, everything. Yeah, all of them. It's it's all of them because where else is the cobalt coming from? I mean, if you look at a at a uh, a chart of cobalt supply um, from last year, it's Congo seventy two seventy three percent, and then there's a bunch of countries that's two percent, three percent, two percent, three percent. So there's no non Congo cobalt supply. It, it's all it's all uh, painted in the blood of the Congolese people. 
I was just going to say right before that, like before your book, there was maybe some plausible deniability, right? Because it hasn't, there wasn't so much awareness. And I think your book and your podcast, Rogan, you created a lot of awareness. How has the response been to the book? Has anyone responded, um, especially at these major companies? What, what have you seen or heard? Well, the most important thing for now is that um, a substantial number of people around the world have learned the truth. They've learned the truth from the Congolese people themselves. And that's what Cobalt Red is. It is a conduit from conduit for the voices of the people of the Congo to the world that can't function without their suffering. And I've received, I don't know, tens of thousands of emails and messages um, from readers around the world saying, I had no idea. That, that's the first thing. I had no idea. I can't believe this is happening. Um, um, I'm so angry. I'm so upset. What do I do? Because, you see, we've all been made unwitting participants in this horror. When we bought a smartphone, we didn't think, okay, I'm going to plug in the death of a child in the Congo. You know, good for me. And we've definitely been marketed the idea that if we buy an EV, we're making a good choice for the planet and our children and so on. No one told us that we're actually also killing people in the Congo and destroying their environment. We can't lose sight of that. That's the hypocrisy. The EV is supposed to be good for the environment. And you go to the Congo and you will see exactly what the opposite of that means. The complete destruction and toxic contamination of a part of the planet. The good thing is people around the world know. They're learning and they're spreading awareness. Just like the two of you came across the book, made a video, spread awareness. Uh, and, and now we're having a conversation and people will hear this conversation. And so on. And so this wave of truth is 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 flowing across the world. Eventually, that has to translate into ground impact, which will be my next phase of activity. And that will require engagement from other stakeholders, governments, policymakers, tech and EV companies. So have they responded yet? Uh, not to me. Um, uh, I've I've. I don't know how many times made the public offer that if any CEO of any tech or EV company actually wants to go to the Congo and see where the cobalt's coming from, I'll take them there. I'll show them. Let's roll up our sleeves, acknowledge the truth, and then address the conditions. And maybe that day will come. It hasn't come as of yet. I will say, however, I think some of the CEOs of these companies are starting to respond to Cobalt Red without actually responding to it um, directly. There's a bit more conversation about Congo and cobalt going around that I've noticed um, at the last Tesla shareholder meeting. Uh, Elon said, oh, I'll, we'll, we'll put a webcam in front of the mine. And if anyone sees a child going in, you let me know and we'll sort it out. And I mean, it was just sort of farcical and ridiculous and stupid because it doesn't solve anything. But that's one of the first times he's been talking about it. And I know there's been pressure. I know there's been outreach. I know that people are talking about it. And so there's been this effort to sort of respond to what's happening in the Congo. Right now, it's been kind of silly and facile um, responses. And then the reiteration that, well, ABC Mining Company only has excavators. Um, and, and so we have, to, we have to get to the point where the power brokers at the top of the chain want to accept responsibility for what's happening at the bottom, get on the ground, acknowledge the truth, and then address it. And until we have that moment where there's a shared understanding between people of the Congo and tech and EV CEOs, until they have a shared understanding about what's happening in the Congo, 
Uh, I don't think we can have genuine progress, but we'll get there. We'll get there inevitably as sure as every other human rights movement that had to fight back against fiction, oppression, tyranny, exploitation, eventually had a victory. We'll get there. You seem to be, very, be a very honorable man. You've spent your entire life studying the injustices in our history as well as our modern civilization. If things could unfold the way that you'd like them to, what is your vision of the future for the Congo and the big tech and EV industry? Well, um, the, I'd like to see, and I'm confident I'll find a way to help make this happen. Uh, tech and EV companies have teams on the ground permanently. They can't just sit back and say, oh, okay, a Chinese state-run mining company is telling me that they're adhering to human rights principles. So they must be. And this is ridiculous. I mean, since when do we just sit back and take the word of uh, Chinese state-run companies that they're maintaining the human, uh, adhering to human rights principles and environmental sustainability. You have to interrogate that. You have to get on the ground and verify that. So tech and EV companies need to have teams on the ground, 24-7, 365, saying, these are the standards and norms we adhere to. These are the human rights principles we already claim we are achieving. Now let's get on the ground and make sure that's actually the case. And where we find it's not, let's use the power of our, uh, use the leverage of our buying power and our influence to say, okay, um, we need to make sure the other participants in our supply chain are adhering to these principles because we're telling shareholders, we're telling the public that every participant in our supply chain, their human rights are protected and that mining is done sustainably. So they will realize that's not happening until they get on the ground. So teams on the ground permanently working with local NGOs, people of the Congo themselves and helping empower them uh, uh, to strengthen their communities, um, uh, to preserve and protect their human rights and their environment in partnership. That has to happen. I mean, the people of the Congo are intimately connected to the CEOs of these companies, and yet the CEO of these companies don't see them, don't acknowledge them. Um, uh, and that has to change. And so that's number one. That partnership, uh, CEO of tech and EV companies with teams on the ground, working with the Congolese people, identifying the offenses, the invasions, the destruction, and addressing it. I think we also have to achieve uh, a more stable democratic government in the Congo. You know, there's so much um, uh, strife, so much that can be addressed if there were a more stable, transparent, uh, if there were more stable and transparent governance in the Congo. The Congo has been dogged by corruption and poor governance since independence. Now, part of that is a function of the fact that when they had their chance at a good nationalist leader in their first prime minister that they elected, Patrice Lumumba, who wanted to use the country's resources to benefit his people, well, the neo-colonial power said, we'll have none of that. They, they assassinated him, chopped him up, um, uh, dissolved his body in acid, ground his bones to dust so nothing could ever be found except for one tooth that was held as a souvenir from one of the Belgians' assassins, which was, by the way, just returned to Lumumba's descendants last year. So the neo-colonial powers taught Congo and Africa, here's what happens if you don't play ball. And, and so they prop up these dictators who are corrupt, and, and kleptocratic, and uh, uh, and that's not good for Africa. So that has to change too. There has to be transparent governance, more more democratic, stable governance in the Congo. That's also important, and I'd like to see that happen. 
Um, the next thing is I very much would like to see more uh, US-based or Western-based mining companies on the ground in the Congo. I mean, it's all China now, and so it's very hard to enforce human rights principles on their companies. Uh, and simply accepting their word for it is not good enough. I mean, the U.S. already has an import ban on any solar panels coming out of Xinjiang province because they use forced labor in China. I mean, we know this. Uh, we know that their record on human rights uh, is problematic. Um, but it's very hard to control or address or influence conditions on the ground without being on the ground. That's why tech and EV companies need to be on the ground 24-7 in partnership with local NGOs and grassroots organizations. Uh, but U.S. corporations need to be on the ground, too, um, uh, demonstrating that there's a different model, uh, a different way of doing things. Uh, those are some of the things I'd like to see happen. Um, there, finally, much, much more support, financial support and capacity building for Congolese grassroots NGOs. Uh, it's their country. It's their earth. It's their dirt. It's their people. They know what they need. They know the solutions. They just need support, capacity, resources uh, to help achieve those ambitions. And I've seen it, as I'm sure you have, on the ground that... Um, they are trying to improve their condition in life with two hands and two feet tied behind their back. I mean, it's impossible. And they need uh, much more capacity and financial support because they're the, they're the ones, not you or I, they're the ones who know uh, what they need to improve their lives. Well, we want you to know that as you move forward, you have two filmmakers on call for you anytime you need them. If you go down, you want to create some films, we're all in. Oh, terrific. I, I will absolutely uh, uh, take you up on that at some point uh, because film is the most powerful tool, I don't have to tell you, um, for spreading awareness. Um, I, you know, you read books, I read books. Uh, a lot of people read books, but many, many more people watch films, short films, docs, uh, than read books. And so uh, that's why, um, you know, even your short video is so powerful because people will sit and watch it and then they think, oh, wait, what's going on here? And they can explore more. They can read a book. They can read some news stories. So films, uh, media, it, it's so powerful. And, um, you know, keep keep uh, contributing in that way. Keep Harris Lich. Um, I, I want to be mindful of your time, but I just have one more question that, you know, you have such well thought out opinions and, and beliefs. And I'm just curious your take from from like the consumer side. Uh, it can feel so overwhelming. There's there's cobalt in our phones and in our cars. There's child labor and deforestation in our coffee. There's going to be more plastic in the ocean than fish by 2050. Like, especially on this issue, what can we do? What can we tell our friends to do? Um, what would you say in that scenario? Yeah, number one is keep spreading awareness. You know, because there's always a tipping point. There's always a tipping point of some critical mass of humanity learns of some horror, some injustice, some problem, uh, and, and starts to push back. And there'll be some, some um, community of conscience that is activated uh, that will drag the, the rest of humanity forward with their force of will uh, and their moral authority. And that's how change happens. But it happens once that flood of awareness washes over the world and, 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 and that community is activated. And the more people who know, the more supporters those leaders will have. And they will find the levers to push and pull and tug and yank to achieve uh, justice uh, or change for whatever the issue is. So number one is keep spreading awareness. Uh, never stop 
spreading awareness. And then I think agitating, um, using these tools that we've talked about, things like media um, or organizing yourselves uh, to agitate for change with policymakers. Say, wait a minute, um, this is not acceptable. Um, and, and that kind of pressure filters up. It eventually filters up. Policymakers hear it uh, and companies hear it. Uh, but the, the big thing to achieve is for a, a critical mass of humanity to learn this truth or any other truth of an injustice. And within that wave of, of truth that washes over the world, there is, a, there, is all, there are always champions who are activated uh, and will drag us forward. I mean, the first movement to abolish slavery all the way back in the 1780s began when just a handful of people got together in London and, and, and said, wait a minute. This is not acceptable. And that was at a time when the Church of England had slaves. Just about every member of parliament had slaves. Uh, slavery w was the way of things and had been the way of things. And a handful of people just gathered together and said, no, no, not acceptable. And they pushed and pushed and dragged and pulled and tugged and brought along humanity until the first law outlawing slavery was passed. And it took them a few decades, but they didn't stop. Um, and it always starts with some group of champions who are activated and they will build that movement, but they can't until the horror is revealed. And so that's why we have to keep spreading awareness. Awareness so, is the bridge to action. We always say. Absolutely. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for your time and the work you do. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. We really appreciate the impact you're having on this planet for future generations and we'll do our best to support in any way we can. Excellent. Uh, I know the people of the Congo are immensely grateful for that. Appreciate your uh, activism, your energy, and 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 um, outreach to have this conversation, which I'm sure a lot of people will uh, be motivated by.